0: Look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on
1: Peacock featuring Pro Football Talk, The Dan Patrick Show, The Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports.
2: Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And oh my gosh, what a week it's been. And what a week it continues to be. Week three was nutty, week four might be absolutely crazy. For many reasons. And that's one of the reasons why this podcast is a little longer than usual. I had no intention whatsoever by midday Tuesday of having three guests on the podcast, but events transpired and here we go. So we're going to start off with Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer. Obviously, he's in the news because the Tennessee Titans have eight positive tests. And by the time you hear this, Uh, on Wednesday morning, September 30, there may be more. But as of Tuesday night, when I tape with Dr. Alan Sills, the Tennessee Titans had the first little mini outbreak of the year in the National Football League. I'll talk to him about what this means for the immediate future for both the Titans and for the National Football League. Then, We'll talk to one of the most interesting people in the NFL. His name is Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. He had a great win on Thursday night in Jacksonville. Uh, I just really like Ryan Fitzpatrick. And, you know, I'm I'm not saying he's the best quarterback in the NFL, but I'm saying he's one of the most interesting people in the NFL. He played great to get the Dolphins off the schneid. So we're going to talk to Ryan Fitzpatrick about many things. And wait till you hear what he has to say about his time with the New York Jets. And then finally, I'm going to talk to Bruce Gradkowski, who is a tape analyst and basically a grader for pro football focus, PFF, which as everybody who watches football, who knows football, they study every player and every play in the NFL We'll talk to Greg Kowski about some of the quarterbacks in the NFL this year who are newsworthy, most notably Carson Wentz. And what in the world is wrong with the franchise quarterback, if he still is, of the Philadelphia Eagles? And so the podcast is so rich and thick and chewy and involved this week that I'm not going to do a big intro to the pod. But there is one thing that I did want to talk about. And and it's I want to talk about Josh Allen, quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. So in my job, I try to do stories basically each week that I think are really interesting. And Josh Allen, after two weeks, I said, you know, this guy is having a good year so far, and let's see what happens against the Rams in week three. Obviously, he played great. Uh, made some huge throws, got a pretty fortunate pass interference call on a fourth down in the last minute that really helped them win. But be that as it may, Josh Allen is playing so great. And after the game, I talked to him. Actually, Mike Florio and I got him on sort of a conference call. And we were talking to him. And what really, really impressed me about Josh Allen was that I wanted him to take a victory lap. You know, his his completion percentage is up 15 points from his first two years in the NFL. And I wanted him to sort of take a victory lap. See, I told you I could do it, everything like that. And you know what he said instead? He said something that I thought was really, really cool. He said, hey, I am, he said, excuse my language. I am pissed that we blew this big lead because they had a huge lead. Uh, in this game, and I just thought, you know what, that is really what I want to hear out of my quarterback. I don't want him taking bows after week three. I want to hear him say, look, if we don't get this thing cleaned up right here, we're going to be in trouble when the games really, really count, so that's my little mini Josh Allen anecdote. We're going to get to Dr. Allen Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer, and then our other two guests, and I hope you can hang in for the whole pod because this is one of the most interesting ones I've had in quite some time. Here's my conversation with Alan Sills, the NFL's chief medical officer. Obviously, as we record this uh, Tuesday night, uh, you've had a very busy day. The Tennessee Titans and Minnesota Vikings have had busy days. Uh, This is really about the first time that uh, after two pristine weeks and one week that uh, there was one positive test with the Atlanta Falcons, that there seems to be a potential for uh, something that would really alter the landscape. Three uh, players on the Tennessee Titans and five uh, officials of the Tennessee Titans uh, have tested positive after a Monday test. The test results came back on Tuesday And now as we are here
3: Tuesday night, how does this story stand? Well, I think as you reported, Peter, uh, we have received those positive test results and we've done exactly what our protocol set out to do, which is that we've done contact tracing for all those individuals. Um, As you know, we closed the facilities for both the Titans and the Vikings today, meaning we sent everyone home, players, coaches, and staff members. We've done deep cleanings of both of those facilities but now we have those uh, additional tests that have been done. Uh, We've also done point of care tests on all of the uh, close contacts that were identified. So we went through the contact tracing, we went through the additional testing, we've done the deep cleaning and the sterilization, and now we'll wait to get another round of results back uh, tomorrow morning, Wednesday morning, um, to see what else we learn. So we've spent the day gathering all that data, and I might add going over all that data with our epidemiology, our public health, our infectious disease experts, our partners at the NFL Players Association.
2: So the one interesting piece of news, I think, that is uh, different than what has been reported is that all eight test results for the Tennessee Titans, the three players, five club officials slash coaches, they're not all asymptomatic. There's at least one player who is symptomatic and at least one other who's symptomatic. Does that make any difference right now in how you examine these tests
3: really doesn't make a difference Peter as far as our contact tracing and our and our testing efforts on on everybody else in the team environment where the differences come into play is is obviously the management of those people who are infected and we do have one protocol for people who are symptomatic and another for those that are asymptomatic so that's really the only difference as far as isolating them away from the team as far as testing all the close contacts doing the tracing doing this cleaning and the sterilization there, there's really no impact on whether they are symptomatic or asymptomatic you know, I, as I look at this story right
2: now, I think it's probably more surprising that in the first two weeks of this season, the 2,460 players um, that none of them tested positive, then one in week three and now apparently three uh, in week four. So what does this say about how the NFL is doing the testing, and what does it say about the
3: response from the teams and the players? Well, I think we've said from the start, Peter, this is going to be hard, Uh, meaning that as long as this disease is endemic in our society, um, we expect that we're going to have exposures. We just, we can't avoid it. None of us can avoid it if it's endemic in our community, no matter how careful we try to be. And we've also said it's hard because it takes day after day vigilance around every aspect of our protocols, not only at the team facility, but when players, coaches and staff are away from the team facility. So in a sense, um, you're right that we've said all along we expect to have positive cases because of those facts. And we've set up and designed protocols and procedures that would deal with that, because what we're obviously trying to do is to prevent any positive cases from becoming a team wide outbreak or a league wide outbreak. Um, with that being said, I, I do want to tip my hat to the two teams that are involved, Tennessee and Minnesota. I think their medical staffs have done an amazing job. We've obviously been on the phone since 5 o'clock this morning uh, working through this, and they all moved very aggressively and, and simply asked, What do we need to do? and took those steps. The, the, there was tremendous cooperation and collaboration, as you'd expect. Again, this is anticipated that we might be in this position. And we've thought through what are the steps that we need to take. And and just like any good protocol, you have to think about it and rehearse it and prepare for it. And today, that's what happened. What would
2: you say are the chances, based on your knowledge of the contact tracing that you have done, that there will be more positives with the Tennessee Titans?
3: Gosh, Peter, I wish I knew the answer to that. You know, I used to say that I had a crystal ball, but I dropped it and broke it one day. So I I can't look into it anymore. But I I think that speculating is really not getting us anywhere. We just have to wait and lead and take and go where the data leads us. So we'll see what the test results show over the next several days. Um, Obviously, as we mentioned again, we've closed that club's facility. They don't have any players, coaches or staff in the facility or around each other. They're all isolating. And, And the data will reveal itself over the next several days. We'll look at that very carefully. And we'll make what is the best and the safest decision for everyone involved.
2: Have you at this point, if there are no more positive tests with the Titans, have you told them or confirmed to them that they will be able to open their facility on Saturday and go back to work?
3: Yeah, we really haven't um, confirmed that, Peter. And they actually haven't asked. They've they've said the same thing that that everyone in the equation has said, and that is tell us what the safest thing to do is, and that's what we want to do. So we're literally taking this one day at a time. And that's all we can do at this point. And as I said, each day we'll have more data. We'll have more data on hand from the test. We'll look for any emergence of symptoms. We'll continue to process the contact tracing information. And there's one other group that we didn't mention, Peter, and that's everyone affected around game day that are, that are not part of either team, what we call our game day assistants or GDAs. Um, again, we have notified all of them. We've done contact tracing for all of those individuals. So that includes people like the game officials who are on the field, the, the chain crew that's on the sideline, our unaffiliated neurotrauma consultants and airway doctors and everyone who might've been on the field. And so we've gone through this same exercise that we did with the teams with all of those individuals. Uh, we've notified them as appropriate and gone through the contact tracing process. I, I'm happy to report that we don't have any close contacts for any of those individuals but obviously again, we'll continue to carefully monitor them. So there are really three different systems that are affected here between the two teams and then all those game day personnel as well.
2: Will those game day personnel be tested additionally this
3: week? Yeah, we've set that up and set in process those procedures. And so um, we will be testing the game officials additionally and and those others, as I mentioned, who are involved uh, with direct contact. And the officials, the, the officiating crew
2: that did that game Am I right in saying that they will be off
3: this weekend? Yeah, I think uh, that's, again, a decision we'll make based on the results that we see coming uh, coming down the pike. But we have prepared for that eventuality and, and notified a replacement crew to be uh, available, again, just out of an abundance of caution. We're trying to think long term here, you know, what is the safest for everybody involved? And, and so uh, we'll work through the data and the test results as they come back. Uh, Dr. Sills, have you figured
2: out exactly how long, how many days that it is safe after a situation like this? Because, you know, a lot of people are told if you come into contact with anyone who may have COVID-19, they have to quarantine for two weeks. And in this particular case, how is it determined how long that people have to quarantine for?
3: Well, I think, Peter, again, that's a, a comprehensive discussion that we have with our epidemiologic and our infectious disease and our population health advisors looking at the particulars of this situation. I will say that one thing that's a little different about us than than that standard recommendation is that we do have daily testing. We're testing people every single day. And obviously, the, the general public health guidelines were not developed with that scenario in mind. So that doesn't mean we can ignore uh, good medical principles. But we are in a little different place because we have so much information being able not only to screen our players coaches and staff but test them every single day and also look into the to the, uh, the strength of the, any signal that might be present in those tests so it's hard for me to give you an exact answer i would just say again we have to look at the test data the symptom data And also look at any pattern of spread or transmission because what you're looking to see is does there appear to be ongoing transmission within a team environment or or within individuals that are in contact? And that'll have an implication and that'll guide us for how long we think it's important for that team to remain apart.
2: I guess your biggest concern overall must be that, you know, at least one of these players in this game possibly could have been positive at that time. And he could have spread it during the game. So tell me your biggest fear. Once you found out exactly what had happened, that three players had tested positive, um, what was your biggest fear and what did you look to do?
3: Well, I think what we looked to do was to do exactly what, as I said, we had planned Planned for and, that was, and we simply needed to go through the steps and, and really focus on the communication to make sure we notified everyone as quickly as possible. And then we immediately got onto the contact tracing. Um, I think as far as transmission during the game, th- this points back, Peter, to some of the things we've been saying all along. I know you've heard me say this and many others have. Testing is not what keeps us safe we can never let our guard down and think, well, just because everyone tested negative from a Saturday test that we're all fine on Sunday. And I think that even goes back to a recent discussion that was had about coaches and face masks and face coverings. I know a number of people raised the question, well, why is the NFL making a big deal about that? Everybody's tested and they're negative. They don't need to worry about that. And this situation points out the answer to that question is we can never rely on testing to keep us safe. What keeps us safe is physical distance and the use of face masks and face coverings and symptom reporting and hand hygiene and all those other parts of our protocol. I always say that the testing is really like our report card. It just shows us how did we do on those factors and do we have an emerging problem? But, you know, to the point of game day, this is why we can't go into game day and simply say, hey, it's business as usual, because, again, even though everyone tested negative on Saturday, that there can be exposures. And I think that's what you've seen in this case. So hopefully that'll help us continue to spread that message. And and we'll continue to do an important job in keeping everyone safe during the game environment by doing all those things that we know are really important for risk mitigation.
2: Are you concerned that now that the players are out of the relative cocoon of training camp and now sort of living in the real world, that this will be the first of many?
3: Well, I think we've said all along that we expect this to be hard and it's gonna require continued and ongoing diligence, not just by players, but by coaches and staff members. And again, remember um, people share households. They share households with, with others that are going into other environments. They share households with children that may be going to school. So this is a there's a constant um, uh, risk that that's accumulated by everyone. And again, that's why we have to have protocols that tries to test and screen as frequently as we can, immediately identify someone if they are infected, get them removed from that environment environment do contact tracing and do all the things that we've talked about so I guess to answer your question I'd say obviously I like everyone else hope and pray we never have another positive case during the course of the season but I think it's naive to to put all our hope in that I mean as someone famously once said hope's not a strategy right our strategy has to be we expect there are going to be positive cases what will we do to deal with those as quickly as we can and again try to prevent a large-scale outbreak but I, I think it's extraordinarily difficult, if not almost impossible to go through the rest of the season without having some positive cases, no matter how careful everyone tries to be. Because again, this is a disease that's endemic out in our society. In fact, we're seeing, Peter, higher rates of disease transmission and endemic. So as long as that's out there, we know that we're going to be vulnerable.
2: You know, we'll end with this. Um, I know that you're not a football guy, and I know you're not the guy who makes the final decision. (laughs) But the football fan will ask this question. If the Tennessee Titans can't get into their facility until the weekend, while the Pittsburgh Steelers, who they're playing, scheduled to play this weekend, have a full and normal practice week in Pittsburgh, and they go in to play the game, how could it be fair for this game to happen on Sunday, and what are the chances – that this game gets moved to Monday or Tuesday out of a relative
3: sense of fairness. Well, I think there are a couple of things I would say to that. Thankfully, Peter, as you pointed out, that's not decisions that I'm charged with. I'm simply asked to lead the medical effort. and, And that is really our North star here, which is what is the right thing to do medically. That has to be more important that any decisions, and will continue to guide us, is what decisions make us the safest, not for only for each player, for each club, but for the league as a whole. So that's always going to be our number one guiding principle. I would say also, though, that the commissioner has a a panel, a a group of advisors uh, that he convened to discuss these types of issues. And I'm sure that he already has. I know that he already has gotten input from that group and will continue to get input from them about, you know, these types of issues regarding fairness and so forth. But the the other thing I would say to that is we've said all along that this season is going to be about flexibility and adaptability. And and we're going to have to recognize that it can't just be business as usual. We may have to make some alterations. Uh, I think also we've said that in this season, equity doesn't equal equality meaning that, that that everyone's not going to have an equal road. And we've seen that before. There have been times when teams have been affected by hurricanes or floods or you know, other things that have disrupted practice schedules, and, and we've simply had to adjust to that. So um, I have confidence in everyone involved that they'll make the right decision, but I do want everyone to realize that the ultimate guide for our decision-making here is going to be the health and safety of everyone involved. That's our top priority, and keeping everyone as healthy as possible is more important than anything else in this situation gut feeling
2: if there are no further positive tests, does this game get played this weekend? (laughs)
3: Uh, uh, Like I said earlier, Peter, I'm not going to speculate on that. I can just tell you that each day that goes by, we're going to make the best decision we can based on the medical uh, information that we have to try to keep everyone involved as safe as possible. Because this is about a long range view. This isn't just about one game. Um, I feel responsible for the health and well-being of the entire league and all of our players, coaches and staff members and their families. And so we have to take all of that into account and, and be driven by that more than any schedule that's in front of us.
2: Dr. Alan Sills, NFL Chief Medical Officer, really appreciate you taking the time.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, Peter.
2: And now my conversation with Ryan Fitzpatrick, the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins. Happy to be joined by Ryan Fitzpatrick, the Dolphins quarterback on the podcast this week. And um, Ryan, I've got some very big news for you. I know you want a game this week, but you also appeared in my Football Morning in America column. So that's really, really quite an accomplishment for you.
1: Hey, I do love and, the column.
2: Okay. So I, I you got to hear, you're, you're one of my quotes of the week. And I'm going to ask you about it. And then I'm going to ask you to talk about it. All right. You said after you beat the Jacksonville Jaguars on Thursday night. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world sometimes, getting to go outside and play football with my friends, which is something that, quite honestly, sounds like somebody who is 13 years old would say, you know, who would get to go outside and play. So tell me about that, and tell me why you continue to feel this way after all these years.
1: Uh, I just... I love playing the game. I think as I've gotten older, um, you know, perspective has, has changed a little bit, but, um, you know, I just, I feel like I'm out there and I've already accomplished way more than, you know, anybody thought, or than I even thought, uh, back in 2005 with the Rams, I was hoping to hang on for a year or two and it's been an amazing wild ride. But getting to do it now at age 37, and to be surrounded by a bunch of 20-somethings out there, it does make me feel youthful and just feeding off the energy of my teammates. And um, you know, having a 21-year-old left tackle that's a lot closer in age <laughs> to my kids than he is me, um, it, it definitely keeps me young.
2: Yeah, I I wonder how it is to deal with Tua Tonga Valoa who. Obviously, he was drafted to replace you. And uh, when you guys get together, what do you talk about?
1: Uh, all kinds of different stuff. He's a very interesting guy. Uh, you know, he asks a lot of good questions, good football questions when we're in the meeting room or even on the sideline during a game. You could tell that he's very smart in that regard. And just, you know, he's. A, I think he's probably a little bit of an older soul just in terms of some of the stuff that, he's into and some of the discussions we can have. So uh, it's been a lot of fun getting to know him and he's got a a lively personality that, you know, makes everybody smile around the building.
2: Do you, do you take on a little bit of a different role when uh, the team takes the guy who clearly is going to be their long-term quarterback I mean, is it different for you this year than it was last year?
1: Um, I mean, it's, for me, it's the same and that preparation is the same. Uh, you know, I know my job security really for my whole career, it's a week to week proposition and I've got to go out there and prove it every single week, but with Tua, um, just being able to slow down sometimes to be able to take the extra minute to explain something in my thought process or to sit on the bench during a game and instruct and talk and answer questions. Uh, That stuff is maybe a little bit different than, you know, how it would go normally, but uh, I know what my role is. And I know that I'm keeping the seat warm for him. I, I know the talent that he has and I'm excited you know, whenever he gets his opportunity, but I feel like I'm going to play a big part in that. And, you know, I'm looking forward to helping him develop as a quarterback. Um,
2: And I, I wonder too, um, how do you deal with, I, I, I thought this was a really interesting thing that happened with Josh Rosen. And, you know, I thought one of the, you would know how he feels Um, Josh McCown would know how he feels other people who have had so many different coaches in so many different systems I've always been curious McCown explained this well one time when I asked him you've been in about 13 different systems in your NFL career or I guess you would say coordinators who would be sort of you know pretty different Mm -hmm. and And in the time you've been in football, in the 13 years you've been in football, I wonder, how do you adjust when you have to go from one system to another and the new system is 180 degrees different from the system you've just played?
1: Yeah, I and Josh and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Um, You know, for me, I think because I'm a little bit further down the road in my career, and I really know who I am as a quarterback and things that I like and don't like. uh, I'm able to enter into a system and really kind of put my own spin on it. And I think as a young player, as a young quarterback, you're still trying to figure those things out about yourself. But the important thing is, you know, when you're in a place whether you're going to be there for the rest of your career, or maybe you're a one year rental. And this is what I talked to Josh about a lot was learn as much as you can about this system, because these are all NFL coordinators. These are all people that have had some sort of success on some level. And I apply so many things from different offenses to the offense I'm in now. Uh, They're all just little nuggets and building blocks that you can figure out and pick up as you go further in your career and, he did a good job here in terms of really focusing. Last year, you know, with the system we ran, and one of the more uh, one of the more complex systems. And then this year, just coming in, putting his head down and learning, and uh, you know, hopefully being in familiar territory in Tampa a little bit. It'll help him out. But he did a good job of just learning and trying to hopefully apply some of the lessons he's learned as he goes on in his career.
2: What other kinds of advice did you give to him? And and I ask that because I look at you as somebody, I look at you a lot in your attitude toward the game like McCown is, which is, you know, look, may the best man win. You know, if it's me, I certainly hope it's me. But if it isn't, I, how stupid is it to try to work against the guy who I'm competing with? We're all on the same team. So what are the things that you tried to impart to him as he's had a pretty weird start to his career?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think every day you've got to learn something every day. And uh, sometimes it does take sitting back and watching and with, and this isn't just Josh, but a lot of the young quarterbacks that are coming in, they started from an early age in high school. You know, they walked onto a college campus and they started and they were the man and, And then you get to the NFL and it doesn't necessarily happen right away. And I think, you know, the way that you look at that, that could be difficult. You could look at it as a failure, but on the other hand, I always took it as an opportunity when I got benched or taken out of a game to sit back and to figure out what I need to do to improve myself and to watch the game from that perspective. And that's always helped me, you know, even as close as last year, where I started the year, I get benched, Josh goes in for three games. Just taking a step back and watching what it looked like from the sideline, I was really able to take advantage of that and use that for the rest of the season when I got back in there.
2: Have you ever figured out why it is that you love this game so much that you're willing to do things like, you know, your family lives in Tampa, right? While you're living, you know, in South Florida. Um, and obviously that can't be a lot of fun for you and your children and your wife and all that, but why do you keep doing it?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, they've, they've been with me all but the last two seasons and that, that part has been really difficult. Um, you know, that makes it, that makes it hard, but there's just, there's a joy that I get from being out there on the field and, you know, so in a way, it's a, it's a little bit of a selfish decision, but I also know that my family, you know, my kids, my dad. I I know that people love seeing me out there playing, and I can bring joy to them too. So, uh, you know, I've had some some ups and downs, and you know, after 2016 with the Jets, it was the lowest of the low for me, and I lost my passion for the game and didn't want to play anymore. And thank goodness, Dirt Cutter called me up and. You know, I ended up getting in some games in Tampa and I was able to find, you know, that passion and why I love the game so much going out there competing with the guys. And here I am still sitting here, you know, 16 years later, still doing it.
2: Why was 2016 such a nightmare other than the the record was poor? You didn't have a particularly great year. What what? really bummed you out about 2016.
1: Yeah, I think the 2015 was such a good year. And, you know, we were 10 and six, we just missed the playoffs. we felt like, uh, you know, going to the next year, we had a real chance, I kind of had my little contract squabble in the offseason. And, you know, I didn't play particularly well, I think everything that kind of could have gone wrong, went wrong. And, you know, magnifying that just being in, the New York market and all that, it was just a very difficult year for me and difficult year for my family. And it takes a lot out of you. So, uh, they, uh, they suck the life out of me and, you know, I, even just confidence wise starting to question, you know, can I still do it? Which is something that's never been an issue for me. Those were things that I had to kind of figure out. And, uh, you know, luckily, like I said, when, when Derek called me and I decided to, decided to go to Tampa really just to kind of be close to Disney world and allow my kids to enjoy the full <laughs> weather. Uh, I was able to, I was able to come around get back on the field and really find that joy again. So January,
2: February, March, 2017, you've left the jets. You're not going back. What are you thinking? I'm going to finally put, finally put my Harvard education to work. Maybe.
1: Yeah. I, I, uh, I thought that was pretty much it. I just didn't really have a desire. I didn't know if, you know, I would be uh, if there were any teams that were going to reach out and, you know, I was not at peace with the way that it ended, but at peace with my career and uh, just kind of all the people and relationships that I had made and, you know, uh, being able to do it longer than I ever thought I'd possibly be able to do it. But uh, and sitting and talking with my wife and, making those tough decisions, you know, she's always been in my corner and, and Liza kind of said, you know, if your heart's in this, we're all about it, let's do it. Um, and that was, that was a big reason too. you know, she let me make that decision and and knew, I think in the back of her mind, it was the right decision for me to make. And, uh, it, it's been, it's been a great run the last four years.
2: That's really a heck of a life partner for somebody to say that because I can just imagine, she, she's probably longing for somebody who is going to live a normal life who can help her with the kids, you know, and help her <laughs> with, with the real world stuff, you know? Yeah,
1: and I, I think, you know, I, I think the list is there. She keeps making her little tally. <laughs> so it's just getting longer and longer. But uh, eventually, eventually I'll have to give her some payback here. <laughs>
2: uh, a, a couple of more things that have... Always, uh, it sort of intrigued me about your career. No matter where you are, you are kind of totally into it. You know the stat this week that is absolutely amazing is that you have beaten the Jacksonville Jaguars with six different teams, and it is thought that 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 nobody in NFL history has ever done that. I can't imagine what quarterback would have beaten you know, the same team with six different teams. But what do you think that says about you?
1: Uh, I mean, it says I bounce around a lot, obviously. But I I do think uh, on a serious note, just in terms of my resiliency and being in so many different places and, you know, how much this game means to me, but also just confidence and never really losing confidence in myself. Uh, as, a, as a football player and um, you know because it hasn't been it hasn't been the easiest of roads uh, and I'm not complaining one bit because I have really enjoyed every stop that I've made and the people that we've met but I think just resiliency and the fact that you know my number one asset has always been belief in myself and uh, I think that's that's kind of carried through and it's kind of a cool, you know. There's a bunch of really random stats that are popping up about me now. <laughs> My Dad is on top of all of them, but that's a, that's kind of a, a cool one that uh, is head scratching if you really take a minute to think about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I, I went back and I looked up all the days that, all the years that you did it, and it goes back to 2008. So you've done it over 13 seasons. Which is really, I, it's really kind of amazing. Any well, of those games, by the way, really stick out. You beat them as a Bengal. Well,
1: that was, a, that was my first never oh, win as that was my first right? ever win as a starter. So that was a big one. I think Dirk uh, Cutter and Todd Munkin were on the other sideline. and We, uh, you know, ran into each other in Tampa years and years later. But I remember that one, uh, my dad has that jersey framed at his house you know first career from that game from from that game yeah so that one that one was pretty cool
2: yeah hey you know I, i wanted to ask you just a couple of things about life too so all the places you've lived in all these different cities what do you think it's taught you and what do you think it's taught your children
1: um I mean, the one the one thing that my wife always says, which I think has just been an unbelievable way to look at it um, every time we go to we can get the moving vans and get go from one place to the next, it's not, you know, her attitude is not, oh, shoot, we got to move again. It's uh, we're on to the next adventure. And, and everywhere we go, uh, we really dive into the community. You know, basically, the way I pick the houses is I look at good public schools and we get somewhere close to a good public school and just really dive in, uh, through youth sports, through activities, through hanging out in the front yard with the neighbors. And that's been the winning formula for us everywhere we've been. We, have just come into contact with so many amazing, amazing families and people. And, uh, I think because my wife views it as that, my kids see it the same way and have such a great outlook on life. And, you know, the older, that they get, the more difficult these moves become because there's more emotion and things tied to it. But, uh, at the same time, it's, it's been such a blessing to be able to do it and, you know, have the means to do it comfortably. And just the, the people we've met, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade, trade it for a thing.
2: Is that one of the reasons the difficulty in the moves, one of the reasons why, uh, they stayed back in Tampa while you're in Miami. Is it just easier yeah. as a family?
1: it's, it's not too far away. You know, it's just been, it's been a little bit easier just in terms of uh, some of the stability and stuff as the kids get older, but um, you know, luckily we're able to have fans in Miami and so they'll come out to all the home games and um, you know, that part of it's been, been really good. And now of course with FaceTime and zoom and all that um, you know, it doesn't make it any easier, but it's nice to, to be able to see them and do that. But in all that too, just they know how important this is to me. They know how important they are to me, but just the, the sacrifice. And I always think about the sacrifice that I'm making to be here. I want it to be worth something, you know, and I want to make sure whether it's teaching to or guiding these guys on Sundays, like that, that what I'm doing and the sacrifices I'm making for my family are worth it. Do you
2: think whenever it ends this year, next year, whenever, whenever, that you'll always look at Tua Tonga Valoa and say, you know, I helped water
1: that garden. I mean, as long as he has a great career, if he has a great career, <laughs> I'm taking all the credit for it. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, I'll be the first one to say, I don't even know that guy, you know, <laughs> in south, but I, I expect good, good things from him. So, um, you know, I said it earlier, but I'll, I'll be his biggest cheerleader when he gets in there.
2: Um, I also think it's it's kind of cool how you kind of have embraced the whole Florida thing, you know, with the uh, <laughs> you know with the shirts and the and everything about it. But but what seems odd to me is men in Florida, where it's predominantly hot during the course of the year, do not grow beards like this. And the most common question. I think you must get is I know you get used to a beard because I used to have one a long time ago. Yeah. But at some point, doesn't it get in August? Doesn't it get just totally ridiculously hot?
1: It just it's been a part of me for so long that I don't I'm used to it. I don't I don't know like, uh, you know, the the Genesis, I, this started, I didn't even know I could grow a beard for a long, well, I couldn't grow a beard for a long time, and when I got to Buffalo, uh, I did it out of necessity, you know, because it was so cold, and I wanted to see if it would grow, and all of a sudden I realized, wow, this thing, this thing kind of took on a life of its own, and uh, it's just, it's who I am now, so I don't even really notice it, to be honest, one way or the other.
2: Hmm. Um. We'll end with this. I was doing some statistical work over the weekend, and I find that the quality of quarterbacking in the NFL right now, I think, is so incredibly good. And, you know, I looked up in the year 2000, there were five guys who had a passer rating over 95. In the year 2010, there were six guys who had a passer rating over uh, 95. And this morning, as we sit here, there are 16 guys who have a passer rating over 95. Now, who knows? By the end of the year, it might be eight or nine or 10, but it's not going to be five or six. And so tell me in your mind, why has the quality of quarterbacking improved almost everywhere throughout the
1: league during the course of your career? Well, I think I think guys are coming in more polished. Uh I I do think that's part of it. Uh I think being able to rely on the space game a little bit and you know, so some of these what I would call breather plays where there's not a whole lot of thought as a quarterback that needs to go in it, but you're kind of taking advantage and winning, you know, by by horizontally stretching the field and, you know, getting guys in space with the throws. I think completion percentages has gone, have gone up because of that as well. Um, and then it just this year, something's a little bit different about the early part of this year, uh, and it probably has to do with the lack of offseason. And, um, you know, I think we'll start to see defenses catch up a little bit here as as the season goes on. But I I, feel, I, have, I don't know the stats, but I feel like the, the scoring's been up a little bit. Um, and I think that'll continue to come down. But um, guys, definitely more polish coming in. I think the, the receivers, the quality of receiver right now from top to bottom is the best that I've ever seen it. Um, and I don't know if that's because kids are playing football and flag football much younger or what it is, but uh, that part of it's been cool to see too.
2: You got that young kid right? uh Williams, right? From, um, you know, who was a free agent last year. Yeah. And I look at him, he's like six, five great hands. And I look at him and I say, how in the world does he not get drafted? And then I say, well, because there are so many of them. <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> yeah. There's, there's not a whole lot of guys that walk into a building. It's even an NFL building that look like him, you know? And so he's, He's a classic example of a guy that came in as an undrafted free agent and really produced well as rookie year, ended up getting hurt. But uh, there's there's a glut of receivers right now, and and it's just going to be better and better for our game.
2: Hey, Ryan Fitzpatrick, I really appreciate you taking some time and talking to me. Good luck the rest of the way and good luck with the rest of your life. I think whatever you do, you'll probably have fun.
1: All right. Thank you, Peter.
2: And now let's hear from a former NFL quarterback, Bruce Gradkowski, who now works for PFF, Pro Football Focus. He is the man who sets the quarterback grades for PFF. Back on an action-packed Peter King podcast. Uh, So happy to be joined by Bruce Gradkowski. Many of you may remember Bruce Gradkowski as the Toledo Rocket, who made just a phenomenal wave in the NFL when he played quarterback. And what I remember more than anything, Bruce, is when you were quarterbacking the Oakland Raiders and in 2009, you went into Pittsburgh to the team that you were devoted to as a kid, And you beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in Pittsburgh in what has to be a moment in your life that you will never forget. It's only been 11 years, but I bet you remember it like it was yesterday.
0: Oh, absolutely, Peter. I mean, you know, that's why I have the Raiders picture in the background and my son's only five and three and my daughter's seven, but I don't think they're too young to watch some highlights. Right. So I'm showing them that game. That's, That's my one claim to fame, but man, what a game, what an atmosphere, and especially going to Heinz Field, uh, you know, growing up a Steelers fan and win was pretty cool. Uh, So we had some great memories. Uh, It flies by, but I'm happy to continue, you know, on the football journey and and continue watching the great quarterbacks now playing in this game.
2: So, Bruce, now you analyze quarterbacks for pro football focus, PFF, which – over the last 14 years, has become a Bible for so many people in and around the NFL. And what I really wanted to do is go over four or five names. We're going to have 10 or so minutes together. And I want to go over a few names of people who, early in this season, for better or for worse, have made a lot of waves in the NFL this year. So let's just start with... Carson Wentz. And because I think he's the most mysterious quarterback in the NFL right now. And for those who don't know, uh, Bruce, and, and your job essentially is to analyze every quarterback in every snap, in every throw he makes. And right now, when I call up the PFF quarterback rankings there have been 41 quarterbacks who you have rated this year. Dwayne Haskins is 41, and Carson Wentz, one of the highest-paid players in NFL history, is number 40. I want you to tell me, if you can, what you see wrong when you study the tape on Carson Wentz.
0: Well, it's a lot of late nights, Peter. You know, that's for sure. Great in every throw, every single game, every single snap, but it's fun. Carson Wentz is one of the most disappointments to start off this season. You know, just for instance, uh, he leads the league for us in PFF turnover-worthy plays with 12. And not just leads it, I mean, by double. The next guy behind him is Trubisky with six, and Wentz has 12. So too many forced passes in there, trying to extend plays too much. But the biggest thing I noticed, especially from week one, it it wasn't what the Washington football team was doing. It was just what the Eagles couldn't do, and he could not connect and hit the open receiver downfield. He had many opportunities, so it's been very disappointing to watch, and and one of the other main stats I keep an eye on is the uncatchable, inaccurate throws, and he's at the bottom of the list, and I'm talking about when a quarterback's in rhythm and the receiver is open, and once is it like 22% of uncatchable, inaccurate throws that he should make, so it's just very disappointing. Those are a few things that have stood out to me. Do you have a theory about why? I think he's, he's just trying to do too much at times. You know, and now when you get in this little slump, it, it, it's a matter of, you know, getting in, into a rhythm, which he can't. Uh, sometimes his re- receivers aren't separating as this past week. Uh, and now you're not playing with the confidence. And going into this last game, I saw some things against the Bengals that, you know, him diving into the end zone was fun to see because I think the way Wentz plays, there might be some people in his ear that say, listen, don't take too many hits, protect yourself. And of course, we want him to protect himself, but he's a gritty player and that's how he plays. You can't hold him back. I want to just let him loose, let him sling it. And, and play ever however he should and can, running for first downs, diving, he needs to get back to that because right now he's not playing with much confidence. He's starting to overthink things, and that's when you start forcing a lot of bad passes.
2: Is, I mean, this is overly dramatic. Is he salvageable,
0: and if so, how? I think he's salvageable. I, I think Doug Peterson has to try to figure out how to get him easy completions, how to get him in a rhythm of the game. You know, they have eight or nine drop passes so far this year. Tom Brady is leading the league with 10 or so drop passes. So he's not getting much help either, but he is salvageable. I think he's a good young quarterback. He's just in a slump right now, and we kind of all go through it. Now, the the biggest thing is, is the battle inside your mind. What are you telling yourself? What are you focused on? Because when you get in these slumps, you could go two ways. You could continue to go down the rabbit hole or you could pull yourself out. And I think he's mentally tough enough to get out of this thing. So right now, you know, as we record this on
2: Tuesday night, you know, he's he's about to get on a plane this weekend and go to San Francisco and he's Owen or he's oh two and one. And he knows he's got the entire world coming down on his head. And this is a this is a smart, smart guy. It's a very principled guy. It's a guy with great character. But how does the mental part of this, especially in a city like Philadelphia, where everybody is killing him, where half the talk show callers, you know, want Jalen Hurts to play, you know? I mean... So what happens? You have been in that – you've been in that seat, not not the exalted seat that he is in, but you've been a quarterback in the NFL. What happens when everybody is down on you?
0: Well, I I went through my rookie year, you know, starting 11 11 games for John Gruden in Tampa Bay. You know, it's a mental battle to continue to, to not only prepare, Period every week. Worry about what you could control. And if you're if you're Wentz right now, you really have to go back back to the drawing board and what's in your control. Don't worry about all the outside noise. Turn the TV off. Don't read articles. Get back to what you could do. He's a good, strong player. He's a young stud. He's strong, physical, has the arm talent. He just has to get back into that rhythm. Doug Peterson has to help him out. You watch Jared Goff in that offense, the bootlegs, the misdirections, the play action pass. Do things like that to help your quarterback out and get him back in a rhythm because he is a good young player, and I hope mentally he could be tough enough to get out of this because that's what it's about. You know, same thing with Trubisky this year is, you know, you're hearing, oh, he's starting the season with more confidence. Man, playing the quarterback position, you have to have a short memory, and, and you have to move on and not worry about the past, and he has to move on right now. It feels like the weight of the world, but listen, we've only played three games. So there's a lot, lot of time to kind of uh, pick it back up.
2: All right, we got four more quarterbacks, and I won't take as long with these guys, but number 35 on your list this week. It's eye-popping that Drew Brees is one of the lowest-rated quarterbacks in pro football focus this year because he's always been on any list of really highly-rated quarterbacks. Tell me when you watch Breeze what you see.
0: I I just think he doesn't have a comfort blanket right now. You know, Drew Breeze is used to, uh, you know, his guys out there he can rely on and count on. And right now, it's Alvin Kamara. You know, what he can do out of the backfield is just amazing. It's fun to watch. One of the best backs, if not the best back in the league right now. And I just see a lot of miscommunications. You know, Jared Cook on a corner route flattens it. And Drew Breeze is throwing him high. So he misses that pass. You know, Emmanuel Sanders, you know, a miscommunication on a little stop route, a choice route inside on a third down. He throws it low. It should have been caught, but he drops it. It's kind of both of them play a part in that. There's too many of those things. This this offense right now isn't efficient like we're used to seeing from Drew Brees and Sean Payton. Yes, his arm strength isn't all there as it was in the past. But Drew Brees doesn't always just sling it around the yard and throw it 50 yards downfield. He's very efficient. He's strategic. Him and Sean Payton, how they attack defenses. He needs that security blanket. He needs someone he could count on and rely on. And right now he doesn't have that.
2: Cam Newton, to me, is an absolutely fascinating case because the Patriots don't even aren't even in touch with him until about June 20th. The only reason he's on the patriots today is because nobody else wanted him and you know and the fact that he's playing for absolute pennies and and so i've watched him a lot and i still am not positive i think he is his accuracy has been great i'm still not positive that once he gets beat up beat you know beat around uh, the pocket a little bit that he's going to be able to be the guy who can lead a team very deep into the playoffs. I don't know that. I just, I just don't know yet about Cam Newton. What do you see when you watch Newton on tape?
0: I, I just love this story, right? He he's playing with the chip on his shoulder. He he's having a little he's being revitalized right now in his career. And what a way to be with Bill Belichick, the best coach in the NFL, Josh McDaniels. Talk about being strategic and having certain specific game plans week in and week out, they do a phenomenal job that way. But Cam Newton, watching him play, Peter, we, we just talked about it with Wentz, is playing with confidence. And Cam Newton right now is playing with that swagger, that confidence. His feet look good. You know, he's getting lined up to his target. He's playing smooth. And he's getting through his reads the right way. I mean, he's just playing with that confidence. And honestly, if he can continue to add a little bit in the running game like he has – He doesn't have to do it all. He doesn't have to run it 25 times a game, but still defense has to prepare for those runs and continue to play team ball. I mean, I think he can get it done. Hopefully he stays healthy through the remainder of the year, but it's just been fun to watch. He's been one of our top graders in play action pass him and Josh Allen. And that's fun to watch. You know, that's always easier on the quarterback when you have good play action pass, you have good targets downfield. Sometimes everyone talks about quick game and all that. Those are easy throws. I'm telling you, give me play action pass, those 18 to 22 yard routes downfield. There's more field to work, more space to work with. And uh, Josh Allen's showing us, Cam Newton's showing us. So they, they've been two fun guys to watch so far this year.
2: I'm going to get to Josh Allen, uh, but I'm going up your your list right now. And you got Lamar Jackson, number 11, the reigning NFL MVP. And... I just did a little film thing uh, for NFL Game Pass, NBC. We've got to deal with them. And so I do one person a week and I look at that person. And, you know, the thing that really bothers me about the Baltimore Ravens right now is that when you look at the Ravens and the way the Ravens play, it's almost like, if they're not ahead and can really pound you and play with this great confidence and this great momentum, they just have a tremendously hard time doing this. And, 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 you know, there's a few plays in this game, you know, the drop passes by Mark Andrews, one of them right before halftime, nobody around him drops it right in his gut. You know, the, the, the false start late by Orlando Brown on a huge play In the third quarter, Uh, Ronnie Stanley just looking around at people like, who am I supposed to block? You know, he just he's in a daze. And so I don't want to blame it all on Lamar Jackson. But I do want to say that, you know, he missed some throws in this game Monday night, including the throw with Marquise Brown having two steps on the corner way up the right side. And he threw it short. And it not only was incomplete, it was almost intercepted. I don't mean to go on that long rant because I'd love to hear your thought when you watched, uh, you know, when you watch Lamar Jackson, especially in the Monday night game.
0: Well, those are all uh, great points, Peter. Definitely fair points. I think you know it's the drop passes, like you talked about, Mark Andrews. You have to come down with those. The things I was impressed with is Lamar Jackson is still like that throw to Mark Andrews. He's putting it right on the money. You have to make those plays, especially when you're playing an offense like Patrick Mahomes. And then you're right. I mean, Baltimore's not built to come back from big deficits. Uh, Defensively, I thought Baltimore would have played better against the Chiefs, giving them more opportunities. Uh, They just have to get in their groove. You know, they don't want Lamar Jackson throwing it more than 30 times a game, 25 times. You know, you have to lower that number. I I think he's, he's phenomenal in the way that he's such a competitor And the way his team just loves him and fights with him, beside him, hardball, uh, these guys are all bought in. And and so I'm just a big Lamar Jackson fan in the sense of the competitor, the it factor that he brings day in, day out uh, and within the football game. Now, yes, he's not your standard drop back quarterback, sling it from the pocket, but he can make plays and he continues to get better. They just can't play from behind like that. And he does. He does need to hit the throws that are open and that are there. Because defenses are trying to stop the run, especially when you face Lamar Jackson. So you have to take advantage of those one-on-ones outside. And that's when he can't miss those throws.
2: You know, of all the things I've seen out of all the quarterbacks this year, one of the most interesting things to me anyway is that Josh Allen of the Bills just really looks different. I've always thought about Allen that he's, you know, he wants to be the guy who throws the 101 mile an hour fastball. And yes, he really wants it to be a strike, but he loves throwing the ball faster than anybody else. (laughs) And he loves breaking a rib with a, you know, with a solid throw, you know, in the intermediate area. And I'm exaggerating, of course, (laughs) but, but I look at him now. And to me, his touch is so much better. Uh, He, he is a smarter player. He knows when to take risks and when not to. And, you know, and I wrote this in my column the other day. Here's a guy who in his first two years in the NFL was a 56% passer. This year through three games, he's a 71% passer. And I've always thought, and I really want to know your thought, especially because you played in the league. I've always thought, okay, you can improve X, Y, and Z. You can improve your decision-making. You can improve the, you improve all these things. But you know what? If you're not an accurate passer, you might be able to improve a little bit, but you're not going way up. How on God's green earth has Josh Allen gone from 56% to
0: 71 Play action pass, Peter, they're they're just nailing it in Buffalo. I mean, Sean McDermott is just an unbelievable coach and leader. And just how they're surrounding Josh Allen with the weapons. I think the addition of Stephon Diggs has been tremendous for that offense, utilizing the play action pass game. Look, they lead the league with 51 play action pass attempts. You know, the Rams are are tied with them. Uh, So as a quarterback, you're getting easier checkdowns. You're going through progressions, high to low. So as a quarterback, you could play fast. You could play more decisive. And that's what Josh Allen is doing. You know, after watching him against the Rams, Peter, I was thinking to myself, because I backed up Big Ben for a few years, I'm like, man, Josh Allen just needs to own this. He's not going to always be the most accurate passer. But, man, he's a big, strong dude to bring down. Just own it. Play that way, because hopefully you make more good plays than not. You know, he's got to watch those fumbles in the pocket a little bit and kind of force an errant throws. But, man, he is fun to watch, and he's a guy like Big Ben I talked about. Not as accurate on the move. Ben is unbelievably accurate uh, running outside the pocket and, and getting guys off him and throwing. But, man, they're kind of playing similar. And it reminds me of Ben early on in his career. He had a great defense behind him. Josh Allen can play that way, and they have a good team. They have a good roster. I think Stefan Diggs has been a great addition. And Josh Allen leads us at PFF 94.2 or some uh, passing grade and play-action pass. So I think they're really doing a great job of just surrounding him with good, good, comfortable plays that he's executing well. Two more quickies. I'm going to tell you
2: my favorite pass by Patrick Mahomes on Monday night, and then I want to hear your favorite pass. My favorite pass is when he throws the ball 52 yards in the air. It looks like he is just winging it to get rid of it, and he's about to take a hit right in the sternum. Uh, I forget, maybe it was Calais Campbell. I forget who it was, but he got nailed. And that ball falls down to earth right in the hands of McCole Hardman who runs in for a touchdown. And I just thought to myself, and again, I'm being overly dramatic here, okay? (laughs) I just thought to myself, my God, we're seeing Michael Jordan of football. I don't know who else makes that play. Maybe Favre in his in his prime, but there are not a lot of people that I've ever seen throw the football that make a throw like that. But and I don't mean to. If you want to pick that one, go ahead. But I want to hear your favorite throw Monday night, Patrick Mahomes.
0: I mean, man, I just love them all, Peter. I'm with you. I'm I'm a huge fan because <laughs> he, he's just so exciting. You, you you're not sure what you're going to get. You're going to see him throw those dimes downfield, you're going to see him throw a laser here and there, and then you're going to see him scramble uh, for a first down. So he really does it all. I mean, I think one of the plays that stand out is probably what the one he, like, jumps, he's almost going to pass, you throw it, oh, no, and then he holds it and then dumps and he it. he on to it, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. And that's what separates, honestly. When we talk about all these quarterbacks, it's situational football. You know, the, the Chiefs were over 70% – Uh, on third down, you know, and you got to convert in the red zone. And the plays aren't always going to be drawn up perfectly. Andy Reid, Eric bien phenomenal job. They they call an awesome game, uh, but they're not always going to be perfect. And quarterbacks have to make plays when it's not there. You know, Aaron Rodgers does it. Russell Wilson does it. And then Patrick Mahomes, one of the best at doing it. So it's so fun to watch. I I just think that offense is neat, the way Andy Reid is dialing them up. Great screen packages. You know, Travis Kelsey, one play that uh, Peter, I liked, it was actually, it looked like it was going to be a swing pass to the back. And Travis Kelsey was going to go out and block and lead them. And they fake the stock block. And Travis Kelsey runs like a little slant, boom, on a third down. Patrick Mahomes hits him. And it's like those little designs of plays that they're easy completions and just this offense, man, misdirection, guys all over the field. And, you have to guard every single inch blade of grass out there with Mahomes's arms. So it's, it's super fun to watch. You know, I, I mean, look, this is probably, uh,
2: I think it's probably a little bit unfair because Mahomes is, is 25 uh, and, and Lamar Jackson, I think is 23, but they're both really, really young. So you just can't tell, but you know, I just feel this way about Mahomes, and I go back to two jet chip wasp uh, with seven and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter, third and 14 Super Bowl, down 10. They're down to their last two plays of the game. Uh, Mahomes got to make a huge play on one of these plays or they are losing this game, no ifs, ands, or buts. And he goes to the sidelines and he says to be enemy. Do we have time to run Wasp? And the enemy gets on the headset to Andy Reid, and he says Patrick wants to run, run Wasp, which is the deep throw, the sort of deep in-cut where uh, obviously Tyreek Hill forces the safety you know, to make a decision. And when he does make his decision, and Tyreek Hill just runs in to the left, You know, a little out route of of 44 yards down the field, and the ball is right there. And I just thought to myself, you know, that's the quarterback I want on my team. He played like crap for much of the first 45, 50 minutes of this game, and then when he had when he had to have it, he had to have it, or they are not going to win their first Super Bowl in 50 years. And you know, when I look at him. And I look at the way he plays, I just say to myself, there's so many traits other than how he throws the ball that I want in
0: my quarterback. He he's unbelievable, Peter. I mean, that play, that's what I'm talking about. You really have to guard every blade of grass because that's uncommon to see an offense run that type of play that deep down the field and Mahomes just nail it. So I mean, the design of plays, Andy Reid must be just having a ball in his offense, drawing (laughs) up plays. (laughs) You know, I met with Andy Reid coming out for the combine. I just remember him sitting back, eating a bag of potato chips, you know, rubbing the crumbs on his chest. And I'm like, I'm like, I want to play for this guy. (laughs) You know, so man, he just—it's just such a fun. It's fun to watch Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. Two two different stages of their life and their career, but man, the way they kind of match up together and make it happen. And Mahomes does it. And he's so humble about it, uh, yeah. but he has that inner confidence that just resonates through the team. And you said it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter if he's playing poor the whole game. He's gonna come back and make a play. So it's 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 like that guy that has all the tools, but he has all the intangibles as well. And that's what makes Patrick Mahomes so special. And and it's just it's extremely fun to watch. Every week I couldn't wait for this matchup the other night. Uh so it was cool to see him. Man, I was not surprised the outcome. I'm just gonna end with this.
2: I just think that you know, just like just like when Andy Reid in kind of mid-career traded Donovan McNabb in the division to Washington. I thought it was so interesting that in 2017, Alex Smith has the best year of his life. He leads the NFL in yards per attempt with 8.6, which is really good. He leads the NFL in passer rating. He throws for 4,000 yards. And at the end of that season, he decides I'm going with the kid. I'm going with Mahomes, And it isn't that anybody said, oh, my God, how could you do that? Alex Smith is an all-time great. It wasn't that. It was like, oh, my gosh, you've just seen Alex Smith play great. (laughs) You know, he just – he had a really good year. Now he had a bad playoff game that year. But you saw him play great. And now you're going with a guy who started one game in his life uh patrick mahomes and just you know you have to have a certain amount of guts shall we say and you've also got to have a certain amount of knowledge of what in your offense what you want to do that you can do with one guy who's very efficient a wonderful player and then the other guy
0: who might be michael jordan and he must have had one good bag of potato chips before he made that decision to pull out, you know, you open a bag, you pull out a card and it says, go with number 15. But no, that's Andy Reid. just has such good intuition. You know, he's been around the game for so long and you just know when you're around someone and not only the the tools that they bring physically, but the intangibles and you know it it stinks because Alex Smith you're right was playing phenomenal and he just such a good leader Alex Smith and for Patrick Mahomes to learn from him for a whole year was just you know awesome for him to help him take that next step but Andy Reid just has that intuition you know he's been around quarterbacks he felt it with Donovan McNabb that you know maybe he was sliding down a little bit let's make this move it's a tough business decision but you have to make those moves sometimes and it, it, it was cool to see, you know, so it just shows Andy Reid. Not only we talk about quarterbacks and, and players' abilities, the X's and O's, physical abilities, but also their intangibles. Well, that's Andy Reid. He could call a good game. He could draw up cool plays, but he also has that instinct, that intuition, and it just shows what Patrick Mahomes, you know, trading up to draft him as well. So uh, it, it's a really cool story. And, and Mahomes, man, he's shredding defenses under pressure against the Blitz in a clean pocket for us at pff so I, I just don't know how you stop this guy i would just play zone and i would take my chances with the running game and all that just play zone don't blitz the guy and, and just try to have a couple extra defenders every snap <laughs> bruce Greg kowski pro football focus
2: pff wonderful really appreciate you taking the time and educating me about this important position
0: no thank you peter
2: My thanks to Dr. Alan Sills, to Ryan Fitzpatrick, and to Bruce Gradkowski. This was an action-packed podcast. I hope you really enjoy your week four, whenever it is you see the Steelers and Titans play. And then I hope you come back next week. I have no idea what's going to happen. We're going to invent another one next week, right at this time. Thanks a lot for joining me this week, and enjoy your football in week four.